This morning we're getting back to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, where our aim is to, in the spirit of wrapping a lot of things up recently, Romans just wrapped up, Pastor Robert finished our series there, we're going to be wrapping up this shorter, much shorter letter, 2 Timothy, uh, this week and next. And there's a lot of good, concentrated, rich life poured into theology in the last few verses. So hopefully we can enjoy that as we look to this text this morning. So we're in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Paul writes this, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we need you this morning. We need your Spirit to open our eyes, enlighten our minds, and anchor our hearts in the deep, deep love of your appearing so that everything we live, everything we endure, everything we might suffer, everything we might enjoy can be shaped for your glory and our love of you. I pray to that end this morning that you would open our eyes in Jesus' name. Amen. Just by way of a short review of the last couple sections, since it's been a few weeks since we've touched on 2 Timothy, Paul is anchoring his last final letter on the planet to his uh, ministry protege, to Timothy, who he calls his son in the faith, who he's worked with at least for 15 years, multiple church planting efforts. He's left him behind in the city of Ephesus where Timothy has been working side by side with a group of elders that Paul also has installed. And his final letter, he's again reminding him what he's started teaching him. And he's centering all of those reminders of uh, elders and appointing good leaders and looking out for false teachers on the last little bit that, that he's built this crescendo in chapter 4 to preach the Word. Why is the Word the central thing? Because right before that, in the end of chapter 3, he says, God's Word is actually God-breathed. And it's profitable. It will equip you and your people. That's what you need. So it is to be preached faithfully in all seasons. And that will help even those with itching ears. It will help to refine and clarify the truth in all areas of life. Paul urges Timothy now to fulfill the ministry which God has trained, ordained, and will sustain Timothy through. So Paul can encourage, and I don't know if that's the best word because it doesn't quite get that kick in the pants that he needs. Maybe it's the urge, the exhort, if you like that word. Paul can exhort Timothy to fulfill his ministry because Paul has also fulfilled his ministry. He's done that here. But he knows 
that is only possible by being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And if we think, as we get to this letter, we see that Paul's reflecting back on his life now that he's near the end of it, and and he's encouraging Timothy to look across the spectrum of, of the experiences that you've had. If we think for a second that there might be better options out there, if we have that fear of missing out or that fear of, oh no, what if, what if I chose this path and, and there was something better over there? Paul says, no chance. Because faithfulness to Christ is always the best option. There is no second best. So he says, fulfill your ministry. If I can refine all of that down to one sentence, my sermon in a sentence is, Timothy, you keep on because Christ kept on in me and he is always worth it. One other pastor put it this way. Paul is encouraging Timothy to, as he put it, constantly pursue these tasks. By God's grace, if you want to be faithful to the very end, there are no shortcuts in the middle. So here, I'm including the end of verse 5, that phrase, fulfill your ministry, is kind of the the capstone of the three phrases that came right before that. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Paul kind of wraps those all up to say, all of these things that God has prepared you, he's equipped you, he's ordained you, and he's going to sustain you through, that's fulfilling your ministry. And then he moves on to unpack, here's what that has looked like for Paul. He's encouraging Timothy with a life that Timothy and Paul have lived together for highs and lows across different places. He tells Timothy, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. This is my first point that Paul has fulfilled his ministry so that we can go on to see the second point that he's had a life that's been poured out in the fight, in the race, and in keeping the good faith. And finally, there will be a full and lasting reward. So when Paul in verse 6 says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, he's taking a really significant Old Testament sacrificial content, this idea, and he's kind of bringing it into this new place with a Greek mindset of what that that libation pouring out something, a, a wine or a blood offering on a sacrifice. Going back to, here's the the idea from Numbers 15. You can look it up if it's helpful in that context. It's brought a couple different places in the Old Testament, but here in Numbers 15, it's, it's the instruction. What do you do to offer these different types of sacrifices, and what's the purpose behind that? Here, Numbers 15 talks about the whole burnt offering, the sacrifice of the lamb. And there were a couple things that were included, that a grain offering and this wine offering, the drink offering that was in their terminology to be a, a, a quarter hen of wine. You have that measuring cup in your kitchen? You all that quarter hen cup? I don't know what that is either. I had to look it up. Yeah, it's, it's about a half gallon. So this is not like a spoonful, right? It helps the medicine go down. This is, this is like a, a big bucket that's dumped on and around that whole burnt offering, that lamb sacrifice, to give what Numbers calls the sweet aroma, the pleasing aroma, 
as the whole sacrifice were to be burnt up. In other words, Paul is saying that he wants his life poured out as a drink offering to be a, a emphasizing aroma, emphasizing the flavor of their actual lives to point to what's bigger and better for all of those who he has served. I think this idea is brought really close to what Paul is telling uh, the Philippian church, which Timothy was also part of that letter, by the way. Philippians 2, verse 16 and 17, Paul writes this, so that in the day of Christ I may be poured, or sorry, proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. One's whole life. That's not the phrase from, second, or from Philippians 2, by the way. That's my phrase. One's whole life is the pouring out of ministry. Don't get that confused with God's Word. But that's what he's saying there. Paul's saying there, my sacrifice can be considered as a pouring out, even a half gallon of this drink offering upon the whole burnt offering of your faith. If I can be sacrificed, in other words, to encourage you to trust and believe even more, that is a sweet aroma in our Savior's presence. And this I want to line up again with one more verse in Romans 12.1. Here, Paul reminds them, encourages us, the, the Romans, right? He says, present your whole bodies as living sacrifices. There's nothing held back, in other words. And so Paul's saying that is a significant, life-altering choice. And Paul's saying in a very humble stance. And if I can be a little bit of wine poured out so that your whole life can be dedicated, can be set apart, can be offered for God's purpose, then that's a beautiful thing. That's a pleasing aroma. In other words, Paul's highest honor to serve his Lord and Savior was to suffer for his name and for the salvation of others across the globe. And it continues the logic of the cross. Catch this, if you will. If Christ's sacrifice for His glory and our salvation is worth His own death, then Paul's sacrifice of imprisonment, of beatings, of shipwreck, of you name it, and eventual death as it gets closer in this book, then Paul's sacrifice for the spread of the, of the gospel and the endurance of his people is also absolutely worth it. That begs the question for each one of us here today. All of the different avenues of ministry that God has called us and is equipping this body to fulfill, do we see Christ as worth serving? Is He worth living for? Is He worth dying for? And by extension, are the lost souls in our surrounding communities, even here this morning, are they worth my time or my reputation or my career? Is my family worth me sacrificing for? Are disciples across this church 
worth me persevering to encourage? Are hurting believers worth my care for them? Are any and all image bearers on this planet worth me sacrificing for? I hope and pray that you answer that. All of those. Not with easy yeses. Because all of those depend on one major thing. They depend on what you ultimately love. You can say yes now in a really comfy chair. And later, you will be choosing between one thing and another. Am I willing to give up this to go care for them? Am I willing to say no to this so I can say yes to something better? In all of those moments, you are proving what your ultimate loves really are. The point of this whole passage, I'm going to give away the ending. So here you go. The very last phrase. All who have loved His appearing. If that is your ultimate love, as this logic would flow, then of course it's worth it. Not just as an easy throwaway saying, but as a life daily lived in that exact direction. Because here's the truth behind that. You and I, all of us, are living for something. We're serving something. We're sacrificing for something. And eventually, we will die for something. So Paul's life message, let it sink into you. Scoot up on your chair so it's really uncomfortable because this is an uncomfortable truth. Is sacrificing for Christ worth it? Hope and pray that your heart answers yes. Maybe that is something behind the revival up in Asbury. We'll see if that lasts depending on how they answered that question for the rest of their lives. And here, the beauty is, Paul's not just talking a good talk and then, yeah, good luck with that, and bouncing. He's walking the walk and he's trying to show that that is real. He says in the rest of verse 6, he's being poured out as a drink offering for the time of his departure has come. He knows it's there. What he's describing is literally the loosening or the releasing of the ropes, the moorings that hold a ship into port. So he's saying, y'all, I'm getting set out to sea. My time for departure has come. I'm being set loose. Now, he's not in denial using this kind of vague language of departure rather than death. He's not tiptoeing around this reality that he knows he's about to die. It's probably within weeks of writing this letter that his sentencing and death is coming. He's clear on that. This is his theology of dying in practice. He's calling death a departure to combine the spiritual reality that his life is not over. It's going to be like he's departing. Because yes, he knows, the body they may kill, but he trusts in the equally impending reality of the bodily resurrection and eternal life with Christ forever. 
And he knows that just as assuredly as he saw the resurrected Christ appear in such a glory-rich way that it blinded Paul for three whole days. Like, he gets that. This is what he's anchoring his hope on. He sees that reality there and then. So even in the moment of his death, his faith is flourishing. He moves on, though, in verse 7. He says, I have finished, or sorry, first fought the good fight, finished the race, and have kept the faith. Now, in case that seems like he's a little bit self-centered and saying, look at all that I've done, the Greek helps to clarify that, as does the verb tense. So let's get a little bit grammatical in our structure and tense, because this is really helpful that Paul's emphasizing some really clear things. If it hopes, way before Yoda had the Yoda speak, this is how Paul puts it. The good fight I have fought. The race I have finished. The faith I have kept. He's front-loading for us. The good fight, it's worth fighting for. The race, it's worth finishing. The faith, it's absolutely worth keeping. He's highlighting the worthiness of those things and saying, I and you know, Timothy, only by the enabling grace of God have I been able to strive, to fight, to run, to keep this faith. And he's doing that. Each one of those verb tenses is what we call the perfect tense. It's a wonderfully nuanced tense in Greek that shows a completed action with wonderful ongoing results. He's saying, there's a fight, I fought it, and I'm keeping on. There's a race, I'm running it, and I'm still going. And there's a faith that I'm guarding. I've kept it, and it's still being guarded. So the good fight, what is he talking about? It's like life's wrestling match. And he knows that if you stand still in that, you're going to get bowled over and pinned 63 different times before you can breathe twice, right? He's saying this is a fight, y'all. Whether it's by the world, the flesh, or the devil, it's coming at you. It's going to take out your knees and karate chop you three times in the face before you hit the ground. It's here and it's real. Okay, that was a little bit funny. You can laugh at little, just a little. All right, help me out. But he's saying this fight is worth fighting. Don't capitulate. Don't give in. Don't let it take you out. In 1 Timothy 6.12, he calls this the fighting the good fight of the faith. Because keeping the faith, holding true to that, that belief, that anchor doctrine once revealed to the saints is worth keeping. Now, Paul here is not worried about losing the fight. I think that verb tense makes that clear. It's a, it's a completed action. He's fought it. He's not worried about coming in second in the fight. You know, okay, I'll win by a technical knockout. You know, I'll just endure and... The judge will call it good for me in the end. He's not just worried about enduring. He's worried about winning. How can he be so sure that faithfulness is actually not just a measure of uh, success, uh, career progression, uh, growth in seats, those kind of things. He's actually focused on faithfulness. This is exactly what you saw last Sunday. Nobody 
I don't remember how many the final tally of the Super Bowl was. Nobody watching those four quarters were like, if they can just make it to the last buzzer, that's a win. Nobody's thinking that about the Super Bowl champion. If they can just endure four quarters and breathe a sigh of relief, and they'll be champions on the inside. Nobody playing that game just wants to make it to the last second. They're all fight like eight seconds left. And they're like, we, can, we, we got this. We're going. You guys get it. So this is why Paul says the good fight is worth fighting. The race, he moves on to say, the race he has finished, that finished word is a form of the verb which has a built-in purpose. It means to complete the purpose for which I've been sending. He's not just sprinting through the countryside going, oh, look at this, the fluffy bunnies and butterflies. This is pleasant. He's focused on running the race that God has marked out for him. He knows there's a specific path, and he wants to be diligent every single step. God's purpose for Paul. In Acts 9.16, where God tells Paul indirectly that he would suffer for the sake of his name. And then in 2 Corinthians 11.23-28, where Paul spells out, all of the times I've been beaten and flogged and thrown stones at and whipped and imprisoned and all of these things, those aren't tangential to my main calling. All of those sufferings are the purpose for which I am running this race that God may be glorified. And in all of that, even in prison in a dingy place that he is in in Romans writing this letter, he still sees the purpose for which God has put him even there. He tells the Ephesians in Acts 20, if I only may finish my course, accomplish the purpose that I've been sent. And the last phrase there, that he has kept the faith. The the word for kept is also translated often guarded, protected and preserved, nurtured in a way that it is healthy. The faith I have kept. Piper has a wonderful phrase that helps us to really anchor what that is getting at. This is what he calls it. He says, I have kept on taking Christ at his word. I have kept on having confidence in his promises. Have you kept the faith in a way that takes the promises of Christ and sees them always at as worthy of your trust, your belief, your pursuing? Have you been confidence, had confidence in the promises of Christ that they are true and right and good, even when it might mean uncomfortable conversations or difficulties in your career or challenges with extended family or neighbors or you name it? Here's how Paul put it earlier in this letter to Timothy. He said in 2 Timothy 1.12, For I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard the same word until that day what has been entrusted to me. The faith I have kept and guarded. Next, the very next phrase 
after he's kept the faith, he says, henceforth, now that's a fun word we don't use enough in English, because of this truth, there, the, the direct logical consequence of that, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. There's prepared. It's in the trophy case. I've seen it. I've tasted it. I'm striving for that so I can actually be awarded this. It's prepared and waiting. When he says this as, as the crown of righteousness, he's describing the crowning achievement of his life. And here, let's get a little bit of this theo- theological nuance so we're clear. One commentator says this about it. He says that Paul is envisioning a final declaration and confirmation of the righteousness that Paul's already received. Paul is envisioning this crown of righteousness is a final declaration and confirming you've, you've run the race. You've finished the fight, the good fight, of the righteousness he already has received. That's nice from a commentator's lip, but what does Paul say? He wrote again in Philippians 3, 12-16. He says, not that I've already obtained this. Wait, wait, didn't you just say that you've already obtained it? Yeah, hold on. Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. He's talking about the perfection that comes with that righteousness. But I do press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any Thing you think any one of you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. And catch this, only let us hold true to what we have already attained or what we have attained. He's talking about both the already and not yet. You in Christ have been declared righteous. That is how the judge of eternity sees you when you're in Christ. Nothing you fail to do or anything you succeed at doing can add to or diminish that. How much does that change your enjoyment, your glad sufferings to run the race hard after knowing that you're already filled? You're already seen as righteous you're wonderful in Christ. I hope that just ignites our souls on fire for how God has already anchored us. That's the core of our identity is that we're united to Christ in that way. We can't lose that. We can't stumble over something in that rock and it would be, oh, no crown, no more. It's never going to work that way. And yet... There is the, also, the, the other truth to that, that we aren't perfected yet. I, I struggle. I, I don't like pursuing that. I, I like easier, more comfortable things. But I'm called to run, to pursue it passionately. Now, it's amazing that Paul says that he's going to receive this crown because it's laid up for him, this crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge, the only righteous judge, 
because he's currently sitting in prison awaiting a sentencing by a very unrighteous judge. Maybe one of the most unrighteous judges, Nero, right? He's, he's about to be condemned to death. He says, even in light of that, the world might think I'm this condemned person, but the one righteous judge, he knows my heart. He knows my motives. He knows my striving after truth. He knows my faithfulness, even when it's faltered, and he is still faithful. And here's where I want to land with this. This is so significant. That that crown of righteousness will be awarded to those on that day. And this is not just something that's unique to Paul. This is something that has been given freely to all those who have loved His appearing. Yes, He is worthy of our love. That's not an issue here. How have we seen the love of Christ and His appearing? Now, which appearing is He talking about here? I think this is beautiful because in the context, He's just said that He's going to be awarded that crown on that day, which is a future coming day. It's soon at hand for all of the New Testament writers and it has been soon at hand for every generation since. It's coming soon. There will be that day of judgment when we will be fully and finally awarded that crown of righteousness. And yet, Paul is talking about has, he's loved his appearing. Paul himself saw the, the glory, rich, resurrected Christ appeared to him very visibly that it blinded him. Knocked him on his face for three days. Because Paul saw the glory that was in the resurrection, the first coming, the anchoring, inaugurating, bringing in of the kingdom of Jesus. And every day since, Paul can anchor that hope and how beautiful, how love-worthy that appearing was and even will be more on that last final day. It's the already not yet. God's kingdom, His appearing has already happened. It's already been inaugurated and it is not yet fully consummated. In 2 Timothy 4.1, he talked about right up the early section of this, he says that he's in the presence of God. He's charging him who is going to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and by his kingdom to preach the word. There's that same phrase lined up with his kingdom. It's already been started and it has yet to be fully finished. Nancy Guthrie puts it this way in uh, reflecting on her commentator, her Bible study that some of y'all get to do with Revelation. And it's the same idea of as Revelation is anchoring our, our hope, our anticipation of the blessings that come in Christ in a future day. She says this about Revelation. It presents a repeated call that is urgent for every one of us to respond to right now, today. Revelation has everything to do with how we invest the capital of our lives. What is worth getting excited about or being afraid of. Revelation speaks to our big and little compromises and the world around us, how we view political and governmental systems and what we expect our money 
can provide for us. Revelation, our hope for the second coming of Christ, our anticipation of how wonderful and blessing and yes, fearful that will be as we see Christ descend as He went up. That should change everything we think about in the here and now. It should anchor our hope. It should anchor our love. It should anchor our sacrifices and service on a daily basis. Here's what Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2, verse 13. He says that we are waiting for our blessed hope. What is that blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, if you've heard one thing, he's lining these two things up together and saying, y'all, it's coming. I've seen it. It's glorious. I wasn't worthy of of being in that presence, so it blinded me for three days, but it's so good. You can't wait until he comes back. Put all of your hopes on that. Anchor all of your passions, every ounce of your serving, every single thought and hope and desire and motivation. Put it in the appearing of Christ because it will not let you down. Ever. This brings us full circle to where we started. If I'm to be poured out, which we all are going to be poured out for something, we're all going to be serving something, we're all going to be expressing some ultimate love in our life. Paul's final question here, when he includes all of y'all, that have loved His appearing. The implicit question is, do all of y'all love His appearing? Okay, He didn't say y'all. He's from up north. But you get the question. Do you look to the second coming of Christ Do you see that anchored in His first coming, in His death and resurrection that is a historic reality with huge spiritual implications for every single second of your life? Is that your ultimate love? Is that your governing love? Is that what drives every single moment of your day? Back in 2 Timothy 3, he mentioned the false teachers and their self-love. Stephen prayed that in our prayer that we would not be lovers of self, looking for self-pleasure, but that we'd be lovers of God. And that would be our anchoring, our governing love. The centering love around everything else falls into place. Not falls, but actively gets intentionally put there. Paul's addressing this problem that stems from the sin of love directed at anything other than God. This is not a new theme in the New Testament. This has been woven through from the very, like the second page of the Bible. Did God really say, are you going to be fully pleased? Can you really be in love with all that God said? So those sins are 
often in the wrong direction, loving a wrong thing. That's, that's clearly a sin. I don't, it doesn't matter how much uh, fun or excitement or enjoyment or whatever comes of it. If that love is in a wrong direction, it's going to mean you sacrifice something. It's a sin. Or, Paul says, to the wrong degree. I can take a good thing, but it's a lesser thing. And if I put too much hope, too much anticipation, too much enjoyment into that little thing and make it an ultimate thing, make it a primary thing, make it a centering thing around all of my life, whether that's good things like family and, and kids and career and relationships, if I take those, which are all very good things, and make them an ultimate thing, make that the center of my world and worth any and all of my sacrifice, just set up idols in my heart. Or, like he's saying here, this is the end of his life. He's come down to the last weeks, probably, of his life. He wants to say anything that you loved once, but that you, you didn't sustain. Anything that you saw as a good love, but that wasn't worth enduring. There's a problem there as well. Just to wrap up that, he's saying, don't miss loving God by direction, by degree, and especially by duration. Don't ease up because it's worth it. And if we want to get really significant, we can flip ahead to Revelations 2, where Jesus gives seven letters to seven churches. And Timothy's church is in that list. It's the church in Ephesus. Jesus says this to Timothy's church, I know you are enduring patiently. That's incredible. God has given them endurance and they're doing it patiently and bearing up for Christ's namesake, they're going to receive that crown of righteousness. And you have not grown weary, Jesus says. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Maybe not totally jettisoned it. Maybe just put it on a little different burner. Tucked it away in the back where it can keep warm in a nice simmer. Or put it on a different part of the shelf. It's not primary. That idea of love at first is both in sequence, in order. It's the first thing you love, but it's also in primacy. What is the primary love in your life? Where does my emotion center around? Do I know the truth that is anchoring that? So the conclusion of Paul's logic. If we love Christ if we are anticipating His appearing, like we anticipated His first coming and anticipating His second coming, if I'm spending my passions on that, we will spend our lives for Christ. But if we love the wrong things, in the wrong direction to the wrong degree or the wrong duration, we will spend ourselves for those things. Let people of God hear Christ's logic. The logic of the cross. He says this in John 15, 13. And then Jesus goes and lives it out. He says, Greater love has no one than this, 
that he lays down his life for his friends. Christ has laid down his life for you to call you his friend. And then he said, go and do likewise because I've shown you what that looks like. And serving Christ day in and day out, when it's easy and comfortable, when your friends think it's cool, absolutely. And also, it's worth it when your friends think you're weird. When they look at you sideways. When your boss calls you all kinds of things against HR policy. When the world around us thinks we're any number of things that aren't kind. If we are spending our passions sacrificing ourselves, serving Christ in the way that, that looks like laying down our lives for our friends, then we are answering the logic of the cross. Then we are meeting the call of the gospel. So people of God, let me ask you, are you fulfilling the ministry that God, God has called you to? And if you don't have a really quick yes, that's fine. Listen, are you in that direction? Some of us are in preparation mode, like school. You might feel that call to something else. That, that is a ministry right there. Or in your career. Are you fulfilling the ministry right there? In your marriage, in your family, in this body? That's the question that drives why we do so much of what we do, from small groups to Sunday schools to discipleship groups to Bible studies. There is never a moment where you don't need to learn more, to have our love informed so that we can serve even more thoroughly. In what ways is God calling you and preparing you, equipping you, training you, even your past experiences. This is not always a formal training. Please hear that. Like, if you've like, I never went to, to college for that, great. Paul went to the college of being blinded for three days and having a rabbi teach him and then going out and doing it. Good. See your past, even your brokenness, your hurt, your sinful ways. God will redeem them and show you, like you did Paul, how you then get to suffer for his name, which means it's worth it. Or maybe you need to ask yourself, how can I live with this end in mind? How can I live to fight the good fight of the faith, faith to finish the race, to keep on, so that I can say that I have loved his appearing, and that that crown of righteousness has been stored up, has been laid up for each one of us as we come to the foot of the cross. Let's pray. God, our Father, You are rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. And that love is what fuels us. I pray that that love would be our anchoring hope our primary purpose, that it would drive us to serve you and serve others, no matter what the cost. 
because you, you, Lord, are always worth it. Let that be the cry and the song of our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.